Gracious Lord, we ask that you would teach us more of your truth, help us to experience, know, and share more of your love in the world. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was in college, one of the speakers I heard speak said something that I've never forgotten. It was a colonel, retired colonel from the Air Force, who had been a POW for about six years. And he'd been the high-ranking officer in this prison. And he told lots of interesting stories about what prison life was like, the way they managed, how they communicated, what they did. But the part that really stuck with me was when he talked about the place of hope versus optimism. And he described how when people came into this prison, the people who were optimistic only didn't make it, but the people who had hope did. And he explained the difference. He said the people who were optimistic were the people who came in and said, we're going to be out by Christmas. And Christmas would come and go, and their head would drop a little bit. And they'd say, well, we're going to be out by Easter. And Easter would come and go, and their head would drop a little more. And this pattern continued until they gave up their entire will to live, and they didn't make it. He said the difference was the people who had hope. People who had hope were the people who said, I don't know how, I don't know when, but someday I'm going to walk through these gates free. And that's what drove them on, and those are the people that would make it. Hope is incredibly important to how we live. And this sermon series that we're starting today is ultimately going to be a story about hope, something for us to think about and hang on to with what we do. This sermon series is going to be a look at the book of Ruth, which is four chapters. We decided that we would read every word of Ruth. So you heard the entire chapter one a minute ago, and you're going to hear the other three chapters uh, as we go along. Today, I want to do two things. I want to give you just a little background on the book of Ruth and quickly walk through this first chapter. When we look at um, this book of Ruth and this chapter one as we start things, I will say we're not just doing some academic endeavor because this family is going to go to a very trying place. And the reality of it is, is that all of us sooner or later go to those same kinds of places, places that challenge our hope. We could sit and think about the things that are going on in this room today. There are people here looking for work who are struggling with some financial decisions they've made. There are people in here who've been through trying times of broken relationships or health issues or loneliness or all the different ways we all experience pain and suffering in some form or fashion. And while it's not the focus of our sermon today, I do want to say one thing, because every single religion has to answer the question of suffering. Because we all face it. It's universal the world over. Everybody faces pain and suffering. And if I were to ask the clergy behind me to answer the question, we might answer it differently, but I'm going to give you one take on what the Christian answer is. You can ask them later their take on it. But I would say when someone asks me about it, there are five things that I would say about Christian suffering. The first of which is the causation of it involves mystery. Two of my favorite, there's not a church doctrine or dogma around suffering and what, how think causation and how God does things. Two of my favorite theologians are on different poles of this. One says everything has to be by God's plan because if you don't do that, suffering has no meaning. 
The other one says, no, God permits it, but he doesn't make it happen, doesn't plan it, not involved in what goes on with it that way because he doesn't want to attribute all these bad things to him. My point, it's, it's a mystery. Accept it. It's a mystery. But the other things that we would say very, very quickly is that God is in it. That's what a crucifix and the cross and Good Friday remind us of each time. The third thing I would remind us is that God will always comfort us and help us in it. And that if we will surrender it to God, the fourth thing, if we surrender it to God, He will use it for His glory. And the final thing we always hold on to is that ultimate hope that there will be a day when everything will be made right. We get that from Scripture and we, and we hold on to that. that. These things to me are the Christian answers to pain and suffering. And to me, when we talk about God's comfort, it's these stories of hope that He gives us. And Ruth is a beautiful story of hope. In fact, I, I wonder where it is in the canon, in the Scripture, if that isn't part of what it is, because you've just been reading through Judges with all these huge characters and violence and all these things and people, the Israelites, who just don't get it. And here comes this love letter between God and His people, between a man and a woman, and it's this great end to all of that. It, it's something that's a gift right there in the place it falls in Scripture. Well, as we turn to the book itself, a few quick things just to orient us. When was it written? We don't know for sure. Most of the authorities think that it was written around the exile, maybe right after the post-exilic time, let's say 6th century B.C. kind of thing. We don't know who authored it. The genre of it, we could debate what it is. One of the um, commentators I like says that it's an edif edifying short story. We get that. And what's its purpose? Professor Barry Banstra says the purpose of it, he thinks, was that it was a time when a story needed to be told of hope and a story needed to be told of welcoming a foreigner in who could worship Yahweh and who could follow God's ways and teach things. That, that was part of what was needed at the time, and that's why it was raised up. It's this book. It has four chapters. It has four scenes. We're going to take all the scenes. I think I drew the short stick because I get to set up all the doom and gloom today. But it is doom and gloom because there's this famine in Bethlehem. Amalek decides he needs to take his whole family out over to Moab. And then when they get there, poor Naomi has a double bereavement because her husband dies and her two children die. And she's left there with her daughter-in-laws who no doubt are very bonded to her. They've been 10, you know, however many years together. They've been bonded through these tears of the recent times. And she, as well, I'll say in a few minutes, is pretty hopeless. And at this moment in time, she decides the best thing she can do is send them back to their families, back to their place, and let them try to find new families. And let them try to find that place, right? That's where she, go, she goes with it. And she encourages them to do that. And as they go along the way, they react in different ways, right? And this is one of those stories where the names mean lots of different things. So if you look at Oprah, she, her name means gazelle. So no spoiler alert, she's going to run. She heads out, right? That's what she does. But not Ruth. Her name means friendship. She doubles down and she commits and she stays in that place. And we get this famous verse of all those things we read a minute ago, this is the one you oftentimes hear quoted from verse 16. 
She says to her, her mother-in-law, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. She's going to stick with it. And then they enter into Bethlehem, and all the women of the city come, and Naomi talks about how terrible life is, how terrible God has treated her. But the narrator gives us one little hint of hope right here. He says they arrived at the time of harvest. There's food again in Bethlehem. And that's where this whole chapter one sort of ends in that place. And I, I wonder where we are in this story. I want to suggest that while this isn't a book that's about suffering in the sense of trying to give a full doctrine of it, it has a lot to say about it. And I want to sort of wind this thing down as we look at these four different examples of what people do with the suffering and pain that they experience. Amalek, in this story, when they face, he faces this deep hardship of the famine taking place, his answer is, I can control this. I got this. And uh, there's, again, the names that are being used in this story are ones that add to the irony or the interest of this thing. His name means God is king. But it, you don't see any account of him looking to him as king or praying or anything else. He's going to solve this thing. They've still got food in Moab. It's unheard of what he does. It's unheard of. Packs up and takes his whole family and goes to this foreign land with pagan gods and goes to that place to live. He's going to control things. That's where he goes. And then, we, of course, we get Gazelle, as we said, who runs. Her answer, and I think it's the logical answer, really. It's the one I think many of us would do. She's a youngish woman with lots of opportunity. She's going to go back to the things that she knows. She's going to try to pursue these other ways of survival and meaning and whatever else, and she goes. And the mother in this story, Naomi, I think it's fair to say she sits in the middle of her hopelessness. She doesn't see the good things that are happening at all. The women of Bethlehem approach her. She's going to talk about how bitter God's treated her. Husband's dead. Children are dead. We moved out here because of this famine. It's just been one bad thing after another, and God must hate me. And she goes on and on this way. And when we do that, it blinds us from seeing the good things that can go on. She doesn't see. She... she thinks she's coming back empty-handed. But she's forgotten that Ruth is with her. And she's forgetting that she actually does have an, a relative that can help in Boaz, as we'll learn down the road. She's allowed this hopelessness to blind her. And the final reaction that we get is from Ruth. And Ruth is the foreigner. She's the refugee. She's the immigrant. She's the one, the outsider. And she's the one who continues to hold on to a bit of faith and hope and that something's going to happen. She doesn't try to control it. She doesn't run. And she doesn't sit in it. In fact, she, for her part, actually, I think goes deeper into it. And she gets to a place where she knows how helpless the situation is, but not hopeless. And she doubles down on what the story would seem to be is a bitter old woman and is loyal to her. And she comes with her only expectations 
are that she's going to worship Yahweh and that she's going to die. She comes with no husband, no job, nothing else, but she has just a little bit of hope and she leans into that and she walks in that. And we'll see where the story goes from there and what God does with it. And for us, as we, as we end this, where are we in that? Can we hold on to our own hope? Are we going to try to control it as if there were no God? Are we going to run from it to try to find something else to fill it or deal with it? Are we going to sit in it and just see black, let our world get tattooed black, painted black? Or will we walk with a bit of hope that's there, trusting God for the things that we know about him in the places where we don't know what's happening? It's a great uh, book to read for inspiration and hope. And we're on this journey together. If you are not with us in the coming weeks because of travel or anything else, make sure you continue this story, picking it up on our media. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you that you love us, that you care about us, that you never leave us alone in our pain and suffering. You always hold our hand and walk with us if we can look and see. When we face trials, help us to double down and hold on to you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.